Welcome to the Chicago Association of Realtors Young Professionals Podcast, where leaders from our Young Professionals Network talk real estate and break down business building with local experts. Hello, and welcome to the YPN Thrive Podcast. I'm Alice Weinert. Every month, we are sitting down with a special guest to learn more about their journey to success and dive into hot real estate and entrepreneurship topics. Today, I am excited to talk about Chicago architecture with Will Quam from Brick of Chicago. We'll be discussing how to research historic buildings, maintain vintage brick, and find great examples of brick architecture in your neighborhood. Welcome, Will. Hey, thanks for having me. Will, you are a brick photographer, researcher, and all-around enthusiast. Can you tell me a bit about what prompted your interest in brick? Yeah. Uh, so my first job in Chicago was teaching theater. I taught theater all over the city for a couple different companies. And going all over the city, I got to see a lot of different, you know, housing types and building types. And I started to notice that there was a repetition to certain building types, like the bungalow or the two flat or the courtyard. And it was often the brick on those buildings that made them unique. And you could see these changes in, in brick stylings and brick details as you went to different neighborhoods or different eras. And from there, I started taking pictures on my phone and uh, texted a bunch of friends to see if they would follow an Instagram account. And enough people said yes, that I did it. Uh, and now five years later, it's my full-time job. Well, you are the expert I think of when I think of brick in Chicago. Um, before we dive into some questions, uh, I want to make sure our listeners understand some of the terminology I'm sure you'll be using at some point today. Um, be- so first off, can you explain the difference between Chicago common brick and face brick? Yeah, so there's two types of brick. There's common brick and there's face brick when you're talking about historic buildings. Face brick is the nice brick that you put on the front of your building. And so if you're in Chicago, in Chicago, you should be familiar with this. Most buildings have, you know, a particular type of brick. It's uniform red or maybe it's textured and colorful. And the second it sort of turns the corner of the building, the building turns into this lovely pattern of sort of messy yellow, pinkish, reddish bricks. And those bricks that are on the sides and back of the building and usually on the interior walls are Chicago common bricks. And Chicago common bricks were made here in Chicago for really, really cheap. And we made a ton of them and we made them super, super cheap compared to the face bricks, which Chicago did not produce. So in Chicago, when you look at a building, the brick on the front was mostly brought in from outside Chicago, from places like St. Louis or Pennsylvania or Ohio, and it was more expensive because it was designed more to look nice or to fit a particular aesthetic. So you got face brick on the front of your building and Chicago common brick on the sides, back, and in the guts of your building. Wonderful. Uh, Something else I'm sure will come up as we're talking about the design of brick are stretchers and headers. Can you give just a quick explanation of what those those terms are? So when you orient a brick, when you lay a brick, you call it a different name based on how you orient it in the wall. So if you think of a brick going, you know, stretching the long way, it's called a stretcher. When you think of a normal brick, that's probably what you picture. And a header is when you turn that brick and let it go back into the wall. In When you look at a wall, it looks like a little short face. But in reality, that's full brick stretching back into the wall and tying the bricks in the front of the wall to more bricks behind. Wonderful. Um, and if anyone has trouble visualizing what that is, um, there's a gallery of photos uh, with all the various brick orientations beyond just stretchers and headers at brickofchicago.com slash learn. Um, so as I sort of alluded to, those the placement of those stretchers and headers creates unique designs in a, yeah. in a brick wall. Um, and there are some that you see all over the place. I took one of your tours and then suddenly I started seeing diapering everywhere. Yes. Uh, any, any place there was a wall that didn't have windows. Um, can you, diapering is not what probably most people are thinking of. Uh, when I say that, can you explain uh, just briefly what that yeah. design is? It, it shares its etymological origin with baby diapers though. Uh, so diapering is repetitive geometric patterning in brickwork. Think of you know, these, uh, you've got a wall of red brick and you've got these arcing lines of, of yellow describing, you know, diamonds across the wall. That's diapering. Uh, and diapering began as a geometric pattern sewn into fabric. That fabric eventually stole its name from the pattern and that fabric was eventually used to make baby diapers and that's how they got their name. So brick diapering and baby diapers share their origin there. You'll find it often in 1920s buildings across these big open sides of the building. The Uptown Theater in Uptown is a great example. Outside of the huge ornate entrance, the whole building is covered in this diapering as they're just filling in empty spaces with patterns. 
And uh, so you just said that, you know, some of those, they often use a, a, a secondary color to highlight, highlight those designs. And previously you said, you know, Chicago didn't create face brick. So it sounds like different places, some of those colors and those colorful bricks are going to come from other places around the country. I know certain cities are really associated with a certain color, like Milwaukee and the Cream City brick. Um, yeah. why, why are those, why are there colors that are so known for certain parts of the country? It's all about geology and, and what glaciers or deposits from various events left in your place. For example, in Chicago, our clays are really good for making brick, but they're really variable in terms of uh, iron oxide. Iron oxide is what's what makes bricks red when they fire. And they're also really variable in terms of all the stuff, bits of limestone and aggregate that makes for a, a real variation in the color and the texture and the shape of our bricks. You go up to Milwaukee and the clays left there by the glaciers have barely any, any iron oxide or what are called kaolinite clays. And they created these wonderful, smooth, sort of creamy, yellowish bricks. And the Milwaukee gets its name, the Cream City, from those bricks, actually, not from the cows. Cows came after. You go to a place like St. Louis. St. Louis had really, really fine clays, not a lot of that same junk we have here, and with really consistent levels of iron oxide. So in St. Louis, the bricks fired to a wonderful, beautiful, crisp red. Uh, and these really smooth bricks. And brick is such a local, localized thing because it's so heavy that for a lot of bricks history, it was all about what could you make there and that's what you used. So in St. Louis, you go down there, you won't see Chicago common brick. You'll find that same really nice brick around entire buildings uh, in the way you won't see it up here. That makes sense why the face brick was so expensive in Chicago if it all had to really travel uh, a exactly. distance. It all came from other places. And with the rail, it was a lot, got a lot easier, but it's still, it's still a heavy material. So it takes a lot of money to get it here. Uh, something else that I see when I'm looking at older homes compared to, to new construction, um, a lot of these older, especially like bungalows, you'll see bricks that are textured with these sort of really deep vertical scratches. Um, so much new construction brick that I see going up is really smooth, almost sort of shiny uh, ed like edges on it. Are, are those just differences in 100 years of brick making? Is it texture? Is the texture sort of like a design choice, a little bit it's of both? Yeah, it's a little both. It's um, it's both differences in how it's made, but largely it's a difference in fashion. Just as clothing fashions change and architecture fashion changes, so too does the way the type of brick architects in Chicago like to use. For example, in the early days of Chicago, it was all about that cream city brick. Before there was even a road between Milwaukee and Chicago, we were importing brick in from Milwaukee because our Chicago common brick was considered too ugly to uh, have on the front. And then it became, and I'm holding up on our video here, this smooth red brick from St. Louis. So if you go to neighborhoods like Lincoln Square or Lincoln Park or Pullman that came of age in the late 1800s, you find that smooth red because it's all about having this unified facade. By the 1920s, they were rejecting that. And so that's when you get on these bungalows, these really crazy textures like, uh, like this one made in Streeter, Illinois, with all of this deep gouges in the clay to make it feel like a, almost more like a rock, like a more natural fire made product. And, and those are also fired in these big old coal fired kilns where you get a lot of variation in color inside the kiln. And today it's all about these natural gas kilns. It's a very controlled process. And the brick is not being used as a structural material anymore. And so you get much larger bricks um, that are much more uniform because the process is more controlled, but also because that's kind of what the fashion is now. You're seeing some more variation in colors these days compared to like the early 2000s when it was all very smooth, uniform color bricks. You're getting more variation then, but it's just the way we use brick has changed, but also the fashion has changed as well. So knowing what was in fashion at what time can probably help you uh, date a building that might yeah. otherwise uh, be a, a bit of a mystery. So you, you obviously do a ton of research into the buildings you photograph. Um, many of us working in real estate have come across property listings that do not have an ounce of the uh, research that you put into it. Sometimes they don't even have a, the age of a building. And it, yeah. you know, there are a lot of us will sometimes have to go digging to try to find that information for our buyers or the sellers really want to provide that um, in a listing. Um, you find information sometimes about architects, original owners, and you know where the brick is sourced from. 
Yeah. What are your secrets? What are your resources <laughs> for finding out this information about these buildings? Well, my my liberal arts theater degree really helps a lot here. Um, no, it's uh, it's a bunch of different sources. You know, it's a lot of in terms of being able to like look at a building and, and tell by the brick because you really can if you steep yourself in it as much as I have, which I don't recommend that other people do. Um, you can look at the building and tell and get an era based on the brick. Um, and like I said, that uniform red is all about the 1800s. But there are a couple of sort of uh, key sources that I use for a ton of my stuff. Uh, one is on the uh, city of Chicago's website, they have the architecturally and historically historically significant buildings uh, listing. And it's this database where you can put in any street in Chicago and it'll tell you uh, certain addresses. They did a big survey in the 1970s and you can see the rough era when the building was built, what the original tenants might have been, and oftentimes what the architect was. So that's a place I go a lot to start with. It becomes tricky for buildings after 1940 because that's when the survey stopped its thing. Uh, another great resource is permits. You can find historic permits for most buildings in Chicago. UIC has an online database, basically an online microfilm that you can scroll through. And it's a bit of a tedious process because you got to find the sort of street uh, and then you go through and you find a little card that has the address on it. The cool thing, though, is it's in the right order today, but Chicago street addresses changed in 1908. And so it will also have the historic address on there as well. You can then use that to reference a larger microfilm uh, thing they have where you can find the full listing of the original building permit with the estimated how much it would have cost to make, oftentimes the contract or what the subdivision was named. If it's after 1909, you can find the architect as well. If it's before 1909, they didn't record architects, which is kind of crazy. Um, but they'll list the person who financed it. And so after I find the architect there or the person who financed it or maybe the original address, I go to uh, the Chicago Public Library website and ProQuest, which is through the Chicago Public Library. If you have a library card and everybody should get a library card, you can search online newspaper databases and especially you can search the Sun-Times, the Tribune, the Defender. And so I'll just start plugging in names and addresses and streets. And, you know, if I can't find the original address, I'll search for the developer's name and the uh, street in quotes and I'll comb through things. And that is such a great uh, resource for uh, finding out these detailed things. Uh, for example, on a tour I, I give of Logan Square, was a two-flat there, and I was able to find easily when it was built, which was 1908. But in searching the address just to see what else was there, I discovered that in 1933, this little two-flat on a side street was a uh, an illegal saloon in 1933. And then oh, wow. three years, yeah, three years later, there was a family living there with three children who uh, ran away from home uh, and just started basically turned themselves into wholesalers. They would buy things in the morning and then sell uh, sell it wholesale, sell it, uh, you know, throughout the day as they wound their way up to Evanston where they thought they could make a lot of money and then went all the way out to Maine Township before they were caught and returned home despite their objections. Um, but if you look, yeah, you look in these historical databases and you can find so much stuff. Um, that's, that's the type of information that you bring up at a, bring up at a showing and the buyers are not going to forget that property. It is exactly. not going I mean, to just blend into everything else that you're seeing. Yeah. It's going to be the the property with us that used to be a saloon. It was a saloon. Our, our flat used to be a saloon. Exactly. Um, and another resource, uh, which I've got up here that is, is valuable for more notable buildings is the AIA guide to Chicago. The American Institute of Architects puts out a guide to, um, buildings all around Chicago and it's in no way exhaustive. Um, but especially for, you know, more notable buildings, it's an incredible resource. And uh, if anyone listening is driving and couldn't write down all of those resources, we'll make sure that we uh, get Will to give us the sort of the names of them and it'll be in the episode description so that uh, you no one has an excuse not to go uh, start yeah. researching the, uh, the properties that they're, they're looking at. You, like me, can spend all your free time scrolling through online microfilm trying to find an address somewhere, somewhere. The okay. really tough thing with looking through those is people's handwriting back in the day. Very florid, very tight uh, cursive. Yeah. Well, you know, if, if for historically significant buildings, it's, it's really lovely to be able to sort of 
know some of know some of that history, especially if someone's buying buying a home and says, "Well, it's been around for a hundred years. Something must have happened here." It's uh, yeah. great to be able to to talk a little bit about that. So, well, and, and you can uh, sorry to interrupt, but oh, you, no, can, no. you can also find you know because Chicago built so much in droves, basically in in, in these big developer driven way uh, swaths in terms of flats or in terms of bungalows. You can find sometimes twins of buildings, and there are many buildings that uh, have twins. Um, on my Rogers Park tour, there's an apartment um, in the beginning where uh, it's on on Loyola, built in 1929. It's yellow brick with all this terracotta detailing, and uh, through archive.org, there's a, an online database of um, old catalogs. And so on that one, you can, I, I was able to find that all the terracotta on that one came from a 1926 catalog from a company here in Chicago. But then I also found that that building has an identical twin in Lincoln Park, just with a different name. They, they've got the names on them in terracotta. And you can, you know, you can find the architect of your building and then find all this other stuff about it. Um, to share another fun example of that, I was doing a research on some buildings in North Lawndale uh, with a friend of mine out there who's a photographer there. Uh, and this, you know, pretty generic two flat. And it was a, I, I pulled the permit and discovered that it was four of them in a row that were built together, uh, designed by an architect who designed something like 30% of all the bungalows in the bungalow belts. Oh my goodness. Uh, and then I, you know, through, I could, figure out one part, I could read one part of the name of the developer and then plugging that into the Tribune archives, I managed to find that his, his I can't remember his name now, but he then a couple of years later started a bank in Cicero that was the bank that Al Capone got caught at, where they found Al Capone's illegal untaxed money at. Uh, and it's just this, you know, it's a very typical uh, K-Town uh, two-flat. But you start to pull at these threads, you could find all this stuff. And it's all it's all right there for the finding. And so that that sounds like a pretty typical house. So my, my next question was going to be, you know, I would expect that you'd hear more, find more details about like a historic, like a historic building or a home that was built for someone who, you know, was incredibly rich and, you know, might yeah. have written up about it. But it sounds like it's not just a, a home for, you know, the, the like the wealthiest uh, Chicagoans that their homes have like a good history that you can follow. It's like you can pretty much find things for almost anything, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot more documentation and a lot more preservation towards the homes of wealthier people because that's the way preservation has historically worked. Things like the Glessner House or the, or the Clark House or the, the Wrigley Thera Mansion have been preserved. And so much more of that uh, has been, you know, maintained and remembered because they were oftentimes, you know, pushing the envelope in terms of design. Uh, but there is, you know, there's less documentation out there, but just as much interesting stuff to be found on the most generic mundane buildings around the city. And that's very much something I believe passionately in. Have you ever come across a property that was just a total dead end for information? Just yes, to... my own, my own, oh. my own apartment. Uh, I, I, I managed, I discovered, you know, I found that my streets used to be called a different name, which is interesting. You find that a lot in searching for permits, but because it's this, it's microfilm online. Sometimes the a card, especially when when um, buildings were given a new number, you know, they had to reorganize. And sometimes it seems like a card didn't make the transition, or the scan of the microfilm is just unreadable. And so I know it was built in 1913 because there's a 1913 on the building, but. I have not been able to find anything about who designed it, who financed it. Um, I have been able to find the names of some of the people who lived here in, in, during the Second World War. Um, that's the nice thing about the Tribune is the Tribune for many, many years. I don't know if they still do it. Whenever anyone was mentioned in the paper, they would give their address as well. Uh, and so I've managed to find the names of some of the people who lived here, uh, but not a ton about it. But yeah, every now and then I'll, I'll find uh, buildings where it's just dead ends on the permits. Or, or for example, there's a I have an exhibit right now at the through the Chicago Public Library at the Northtown branch of buildings along Western Avenue, and uh, at, it's like it's at Polk and Southwestern in Tri Taylor, a beautiful building. Now could got a convenience store apartment. Says Ackerman at the top, carved in stone, 1884. Beautiful red brick. Nothing, nothing on it. I can't find a single thing. Who is Ackerman? 
we don't know. Uh, but uh, I can tell you based on the brick and based on the stone and thanks to that date, some stuff about it and what was likely happening in the design, but otherwise, who knows? Well, even what sounds like a dead end to you is a, a lot more information than I, I was expecting to be able to find out about just sort of a, you know, a two flat or a bungalow on, on the street. So that gives a, that gives encouragement to me and hopefully to everybody listening that, you know, you can go and find something, even if yeah. it's, even if it's not, you know, getting the architect, you can probably get at least the, uh, at least a pretty good sense of when it was built, you know, get exactly. within maybe a five year or so instead yeah. of just, uh, instead of just marking on the MLS that it's a hundred plus years old, we yeah. can get a little bit more specific than that. If you text me a picture of the brick, I can give you a guess. <laughs> <laughs> So when when uh, buyers are looking at older homes, their big worry we often hear is about maintenance, and and people think, oh, you know, vintage home. I don't I don't know what what I'm going to have to. Uh, I don't know what's going to sort of pop up with that. And um, from a brick perspective, I'd, I'd like to you know talk a little bit about some tips for keeping your brick looking great and some things that maybe you shouldn't be doing with your brick um, so that uh, you can keep it keep it uh, in a good condition. Yeah. Um, I see in my own neighborhood, I see some uh, brick, uh, brick homes and two flats that have been painted. And I know you have strong feelings about painting brick. Um, tell, tell us about that. What is a uh, brick help protect? Uh, does the paint help protect the brick? Is it a uh, not not great. Uh, it is quite the opposite. Uh, paint, yeah, paint is not good for uh, brick for a, a couple of reasons. And I do sort of draw a line where I say, like, you know, if you're if it's a mural and you're painting a mural, absolutely paint it on because that's that's great. But if you just want to, you know, make it look sleek and modern by painting it gray or, or white, the paint serves to basically um, suffocate the brick. Brick, especially on older buildings, has to be able to breathe. Moisture is always going to be getting into your wall, and you need to make it as easy as you can for the moisture to get out of the wall. And by putting paint on the wall, it's not going to stop the moisture from getting in. It just means when the moisture inevitably gets in, it can't get out anymore. And especially in Chicago with the freeze-thaw cycle, that water is now going to basically be pushing against like a balloon skin. And you've got a, a pressure situation where the water is going to freeze and crack the brick. Uh, so, but if you do want to change the color of your brick, you can do it through uh, staining, brick staining. Uh, and it's an eco-friendly process with mineral spirits uh, and Basically, you can pick any color and they go into the paintbrush and paint it brick by brick. So you can still get some variation in the colors of the bricks, which I really think is really great. But you can still change. You can change just the mortar. You can change just the brick. You can change both. Um, and your brick will still be able to breathe. And so something probably to remember is that the older vintage brick homes don't have the same sort of water remediation uh, exactly, techniques yeah. for building that some of these, you know, a new building when you uh, you walk down the down the street street for your sort of brick new construction uh, that is built uh, in a different way to uh, allow make sure that water is is getting out and those techniques are are were not used back in the 1920s. They were not back in the back in the 20s and the 1800s. The technique was just having a good a, a mortar that was weaker than your brick, so the mortar would take out the water, or the brick if it got water in and cracked, it wouldn't disrupt the whole wall. But when you put the the really hard modern mortars on those on your bricks it it takes away the, the ability of the water to get out through the mortar and so the water goes through the brick and begins to just crumble and fall apart or you'll oftentimes see on the interior in your basement you'll find moisture gets in the wall and it's drawn towards the dry interior of your building and it's pulling water through the wall and pulling salts out of the brick and your brick just starts to crumble from the inside I want to I want to stay on the mortar for a moment. That was my, my next question on, on there. Um, at the uh, at the most uh, uh, destructive end of things, uh, sometimes you will see a a vintage brick building that almost looks like uh, the brick is all crumbled away, and it's just sort of the lines of of mortar are are left. Um, and you just touched on that with talking about the hard mortar, but I yeah. really want to sort of drill into that and give some suggestions to. Uh, either people who have a vintage brick home or, or other realtors who are um, advising their clients on, on what, to be, what can be done so that you are not going to have your brick crumble away. 
Yeah. So yeah, that is a, 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 an unfortunately common sight. So modern mortars have a, a really high content of what's known as Portland cement. Portland cement is really, really strong and it works great for new construction because you have a water barrier uh, and a breathable sort of membrane there. But these historic buildings were not built for that. And so people put a lot of Portland cement mortar on historic buildings. You know, I'm looking at three different ones here and they've all got it. Almost every building I see around Chicago has it because they think stronger is better and you don't have to replace it as much and because most importantly it's really cheap uh, and that's what people offer but like we've been talking about these older bricks were fired at lower temperatures than modern bricks and they're relatively porous especially compared to these modern bricks and so moisture can get in there and it was normally would get out through the mortar but this hard mortar doesn't transmit moisture it doesn't transmit water and so your bricks will start to crumble and spall and fall apart. And the mortar is stronger than the brick. So you will be left with these sort of gap lattice work as the brick falls away. Um, similarly, even worse than that, sometimes you'll see it's almost as if a mason took a piping bag for like pastry and just pipes these long ribbons across the brick. And brick isn't like, you know, it doesn't need a clamp on it. It doesn't need something clamping the surface. Mortar only needs to be between the top and the bottom. Anything on the surface of the brick is just providing more area for water to get trapped and for water to create pressure. Even worse than that is purging. When uh, people will take Portland cement mortar uh, and or cement and just cover up the brick itself. Oftentimes they'll tell you, oh, you got to do that to your bottom layers so you don't get water intrusion. But you're always going to get water intrusion. It's I always say, like life in Jurassic Park, water always finds a way. And when you purge it, you're just stopping it from getting out. Uh, and so I've seen a lot of cases where people have had to spend a lot of money um, repairing the damage from that purging. <clears throat> and so what type of, what should you, you said, there's a lot of uh, Portland cement in the, the harder mortars. What uh, should you be looking for, for like a, a, a softer mortar? Is there any sort like, of... Yeah. The most common is type N. Type N mortar is the most common mortar used. It's really cheap. And it's um, got a high Portland cement content, a little bit of lime, and sand. Uh, lime is the material that old mortars were made of. It's lime, sand, and uh, water. And so there's another type called type O, which is a higher content of lime, lower content of Portland cement, and sand. And that's uh, what I'd recommend. I've talked a lot with the folks at the International Masonry Institute. That's what they recommend as well. There are more lime-based mortars based on these historic mortars. Um, now in the U.S., um, I believe they're called NHL and PHL. Uh, mortars but a lot of that knowledge base has been lost uh but a lot of it's coming back coming over from england where they still use a lot of that um and so those especially if you've got a really old building those more lime-based mortars are going to be really really important uh to use um compared to uh that type n that traditional high portland cement content you got to find good people to do it though too because a lot of the you know people they're just doing what they know and what they know is using the type n and and putting it on there uh, in a in a way that's going to be detrimental to the building they're not they're not malicious but that's just what they do that's what they know um you can find mortar consultants too uh who do this sort of thing uh for example right now on the mini kirken in logan square that big red brick church old norwegian lutheran church right on the square they the whole building was repointed tuck pointed with a high portland cement mortar probably 20 30 years ago and about two or three years ago if you went and visited it you would see the walls especially on these slender columns were starting to bow open and crack because what that really hard mortar does is it basically fuses your bricks together um, in terms of structure and as opposed to now being a wall of these individual units when one cracks it transmits this whole crack across the wall because it's all this tension in the wall and so they've actually had to you know, over the last couple months take put all scaffolding up and take all the brick down and take all the brick off and salvage what bricks they could um bricks what bricks they could get the mortar off of what bricks were not too cracked up cracked and fully redo the entire facade working with a mortar specialist with a more historically uh um complementary mortar so it it sounds like you know we just gave you all the tips for how to research a uh 
a home. So if you're going to be doing some uh, major major work and you think that you live in a, a vintage home, uh, it might be worth checking out when your home was built. And if it's, you know, probably in the 20s, maybe you should uh, be uh, taking a little bit of extra time to uh, uh, discuss mortar and uh, before you do your tuck pointing, just so exactly. that you're not going to have uh, problems, you know, 10 years down, uh, down the road. Um, yeah. So you also touched on, on something else about, uh, you know, having to take all the, the brick off of the building and, and fix it and how not all of the brick, not all the brick survived. Um, we sometimes not probably not to that extent for a lot of homeowners, but, you know, sometimes homeowners need to do renovations or they want to brick up a window or they're going to do, uh, do an extension or expand the, the footprint of the home. And uh, you can go all around Chicago and you can see where people did that because yeah. the bricks do not match at all. Yeah. The yeah. original brick could have been sort of a multicolored, really beautiful and obvious texture. And they just put on a solid color with flat, you know, flat, smooth uh, side. And you can see where that window yeah. used to be and was bricked up. What are the options for someone who wants either, you know, find maybe a vintage vintage brick or custom brick or just something that's a little bit a little bit closer are there still like brick suppliers that do it's tough. That close or that match closely or or it, that... yeah it's really tough because in the nine you know 1920s when a lot of like the bungalows were built you know the brick making process is one where the bricks were made in these big round kilns sort of that were unevenly heated uh and with really crazy textures and colors that gave a huge range of the color and texture of the brick. And nowadays the brick making process is much, much more controlled, uh, which, you know, both to reduce the amount of labor involved, but also to make it a much more environmentally friendly process using things like natural gas and these long tunnel kilns. And so I like to say there's just not as many happy accidents in the brick making process anymore. Um, and so it's really, really hard to find a modern brick that will match a historic brick, even uh, and because it's often sometimes so much batch based as well. That brick making brick maker back in the 1920s would maybe make one batch that was used on three bungalows. and They make another batch intending it to be the same. And you can tell when you compare them it looks just a little different. And that's still a thing that happens on modern buildings. So you can see sometimes on buildings where they've gotten two different batches of the same product in, but you can see this dividing line. Um, and so that's oftentimes nowadays something where brick staining will be used. They'll have someone come in and stain one of the batches to match the other. But there are some modern companies that make uh, historical recreation bricks. I, I have um, in my collection, about 40 bricks in my collection, this is a modern brick made by Raglan Brick of Alabama, made to look like a rug texture brick uh, from old bricks, but it's a, you know hollow, it's got the holes in it, it's a modern product. And so they supply a lot for like um, the renovations on the Chicago Public Schools, stuff like that. Uh, but it is, yeah, it's really, it's really tricky because the process has changed so much and because many of those companies just don't exist anymore. So if you, uh, it sounds like you need to do, do a bit of research if you're going to be doing, uh, doing anything, uh, replacing brick that's going to be really obvious, maybe on the, on the side, um, but you know. Well, so something they did like on the mini Kirkin, and then they were lucky there. It's a solid red brick and so they were, it was easy to find that right color but a problem they ran into was the size was different the size of the brick in 1908 that they were using was slightly larger to allow for really thin joints but the size standard size of brick today is smaller and so they had to carefully they had to try to find the right size brick and then what i believe they ended up doing was have to really be selective in where they're pulling old bricks from other parts of the building on the front and then using these slightly new, slightly smaller bricks on parts that would be harder to find. And there are um, brick suppliers in uh, Chicago that use reclaimed product. So it's always worth calling uh, a brick supplier and seeing if they maybe have something in stock that might match. Um, I have had in the past to uh, a contractor bring me a brick and say, can you find anywhere else where this uh, building where this brick is? If you can find it, I'm going to go there. I'm going to ask, can I, can I knock down your stairs? 
to take this brick and use it on this project. Um, so people are trying to do it, but it is, it's quite difficult. Um, so I sometimes do, I sometimes will see where they've really gone the other way and use something that is very obviously not the same, uh, but still cool in its own way, which I really like. Um, there's a great example uh, of a house uh, at in Bucktown on Western it's a multi-flat, uh, but it's a block of all that was originally all glazed brick, three-story buildings, you know, whole block. And these architects bought one of them to, to live in. And after about 10 years, the brick started to crumble uh, and fall apart. And so they took all the brick off the facade and replaced it with glazed brick again. But they did it and they designed this whole gradient where the glazed brick at the bottom is black. And then it moves into a couple shades of gray and sort of fading into white with these uh, blue, really sort of electric blue bricks throughout. And it creates a wonderful uh, dynamic uh, facade that still complements the other old glazed brick facades around it. I've, I've seen you post that photo and it is uh, a very cool looking, very cool looking building. Uh, so, you know, you're not not limited to just uh, just what bricks you can find off the shelf when you're doing your renovations. You can get creative and yeah, find some make, ways yeah. to yeah to keep the character of a home. Try to uh, imitate some of that the age and uh, original design with without maybe not, without having to uh, spend your life savings uh, yes, on, yeah. uh, on brick. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, any any other tips for keeping a brick home? looking great. Anything that you see, um, aside from sort of uh, not painting it and using the correct mortar, um, that you walking by, you'd say, you know, you just wish that more homeowners uh, did to keep their, their brick looking great. Don't sandblast your brick. Don't, and, and be very careful power washing it because brick has a little vitrified layer on it. Basically, the very surface of the brick is almost got this like a glass on it that makes it uh you know almost more impervious to water and when you sandblast it especially you strip off that layer and now it's really um open to water but the real i mean the real suggestion is just be intentional and do your research on on the people you're going to hire to take care of your brick and maintain it um because it'll it'll do right by you if you do right by it yeah, a lot of a lot of the brick in Chicago has been standing for a long time. So Very long time, hopefully yeah. we can uh, we can encourage both uh, ourselves as real estate professionals, but also uh, all of our clients to make sure that they're uh, keeping keeping Chicago's sort of uh, housing stock in good condition for yes, uh, for the future. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of all that housing stock that's there, so we both live in Lincoln Square. Yep. Um, I walk around our, our neighborhood all the time and have been paying more attention to to the brick buildings. That's where I, I there's a building with a huge wall of diapering about three blocks from me that I see on a regular basis. What else in our neighborhood? What any uh, blocks or specific buildings I should just be walking down sort of with my eyes pointed up towards the brick just to see well, we something interesting? Yeah, I mean, we've got, uh, we have uh, a, one of the most uh, historically significant buildings in the city, which is the Krauss Music Store on Lincoln. So Lincoln, uh, and I, get, I think just north of Wilson, uh, and that's Lewis Sullivan's last design in Chicago. So Lewis Sullivan um, and the firm Adler and Sullivan was one of the fathers of the um, of the skyscraper that designed uh, incredible buildings all over the country, many, many of which were torn down in the 1960s and 70s. But his last ever design was this terracotta facade for the Krauss Music Store. It's just a little, it was a music store in the bottom, an apartment above, but it's covered in this incredible green terracotta with all this incredible organic design in and the huge round, uh, you know, decorative element at the top of the K in it. Um, and that's an example of a building that was covered in stucco for many years and then was uh, purchased with, and it, when it was a, fu a funeral parlor and then was purchased by an art gallery and then an interior design firm where they really worked really, really hard to restore it. So even if things are in bad shape, you can spend the time to restore them. Uh, but the other great thing about Lincoln Square is it's a lot of multi-flats, courtyards and two flats and three flats. And so the thing that I love so much is to just walk around and see where they are structurally the same. But what are the little design choices in the brick or in the use of terracotta or stone or texture and color that, are, that the architects or the developers gave to each one to make it feel unique? Because the bungalows, the flats were structurally all the same, but what they were doing to make them 
feel like a place that a homeowner could call theirs was by making them visually different through the use of brick and decorative elements, oftentimes in brick. So downtown Chicago obviously gets a a lot of attention for its architecture, I think. Anyone who's ever uh, uh, had somebody visit them in Chicago has probably told their friends, you need need to go on the architecture boat tour. Um, So most people have sort of a passing uh, familiarity with what's, you know, important uh, architecturally downtown. Um, But you photograph things all over the city and find interesting buildings in every single neighborhood. Yeah. You have a favorite neighborhood for brick architecture. There's a, there's a neighborhood that you think is uh, sort of overlooked. I think my, my current, you know, it's always changing. It's always changing. Um, but my current favorite is probably Chatham. Chatham on the South side um, has almost a very suburban feel to it. All these really wonderful mid-century homes on really large lots. Um, houses built in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, um, mixed with on, you know, Stony Island or an 83rd, 1920s commercial buildings. Um, and you find uh, so many wonderful details down there, um, especially in like the 1940s buildings, all these kind of really stripped down streamlined designs where they're really using the brick in sparing ways to create cool things. And when Chicago common brick also became a design material of choice suddenly with modern architects. And so you see a lot of housing built entirely in Chicago common brick down there. You also have the best donut in the city in Chatham. It's Dat Donut at, uh, at, uh, uh, on 83rd and it, it Cottage Grove. Yeah, it's Cottage Grove and 83rd. That donut, I, for, on my birthday, I drove an hour and a half down there to go get go get them uh, and ate far too many. So Chatham is wonderful in that sense. I love Brighton Park as well on the southwest side. It has a lot of wonderful 19-teens buildings, multi-flats, um, and uh, a lot of glazed brick, a lot of what's called iron spot brick, which uh, are bricks that look almost volcanic. Um, I'm holding one up right now. It's got sort of this speckling and a lot of texture to it there. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I think those are, those, are my, those are my two current favorites, but it's always changing based on, you know, I feel incredibly lucky to live in this city because I'll never run out of places to photograph. Um, there's just so much that the city has to offer. So there's a that probably can feel overwhelming to somebody who uh, is just just listening to this and hasn't really even looked at the brick in their own neighborhood. Um, so I'd like to sort of give a couple ideas of how people can pick a place to go look. And so something you've talked about is um, how a lot of schools and fire stations tend to have twins and multiple and like yeah. elsewhere in the city. I think that could be a sort of an interesting thing for our listeners if they don't know where to start looking for brick. Um, you know, find your find your local school or fire station and then try to find its twin elsewhere in the city and exactly. start your walking tour. So explain why there are so many sort of duplicate buildings. Sure. Well, the, because they basically just had to put them up so fast. You know, the, the city of Chicago grew so crazy, crazy fast. And so, you know, and the way the public schools would build schools is they'd wait till there was really a need in an area and then just build a bunch of schools all at once. And so you get, uh, for example, in 1909, 1909, Dwight Perkins designed uh, the 1909 type of school that was then built as Harper High School in Englewood, uh, Gary Elementary in Little Village, uh, Nobel Elementary in Humboldt Park, and Cleveland in uh, North Center. And so that tells you that those areas were experiencing a lot of growth right then in 1909, and boom, they put those schools in. Similarly, Dwight uh, Schur's designed, um, uh, uh, Dwight uh, Perkins designed Schur's High School and Bowen High School are twins. Bowen High School in South Chicago and Schur's High School in, I've heard it called Kilburn Park at Addison, Milwaukee. Um, and those are the areas, boom, there. Or things like fire stations. 1915, Charles Kalal design, makes a design, uh, and I think it ended up building like 15 or 16 of them all over the city, because uh, that's just the way the city grew. And it was much cheaper just to build the same design a bunch of times than it was to try to uh, make a bunch of different unique designs to fit different areas. The one way that that, that is different, though, is you find that a lot of times in the park district buildings. Park, parks uh, will oftentimes have an architecture that matches the sort of uh, immigrant ethnic group that was there when that park was built, because the, the parks in the early 20th century were often built to fit uh, a need in 
um, working class immigrant communities where they're trying to add in green space and add in meeting places to meet and engage in athletics. And so you'll find a lot of times the park district buildings are very unique. Um, but they're also not filling as dire a need as schools and, and fire, fire stations. Right. Well, and if you're looking for somewhere to start your own, uh, you know, do-it-yourself brick tour, you can just start by looking for all those 15 uh, fire stations and yeah. checking out those but, neighborhoods, and you'll get a pretty good overview of uh, and, different and neighborhoods them, in the city. Yeah, many of them have been reused, too. Um, it's cool. I did a, a collaborative tour with my friend who's the a photographer in North Lawndale, and I live right near one of those 1915 stations at Foster and Western, and there's also one of those same ones at uh, right off of Ogden and I think Ridgeway in North Lawndale that's now the um, Firehouse Community Arts Center, uh, which is a, a great space for um, arts education in North Lawndale, um, and so, and it's not something I, I realized that they were identical until I started collaborating um, with uh, my friend Jay, uh, and it was this wonderful thing of like, oh, wow, there is so much more common in where we are and, and who we are in these areas than uh, we would have thought. Something else that you're going to see sort of multiples of all over, and you talked about very early on in, in this recording, which is the uh, terracotta, terracotta coming from um, uh, just a catalog where yeah. uh, architects could look in the catalog and uh, choose some terracotta. Uh, I know I, I've heard you talk before about one particular terracotta uh, medallion, I guess it is, yeah, sort yeah. of everywhere in the in the city. Um, it's it's number 4508, design 4508, made by the Midland Terracotta Company here in Chicago. Um, and it's also referred to oftentimes as a Sullivan-esque sunburst, because the design is based on a design uh, Louis Sullivan made for part of a, a, a banister. Um, I think maybe at the Garrick Theater, I can't remember exactly, but it's at the Art Institute. And it's this, this circular medallion. And yeah, you find it all over the city. I pointed out on uh, one of my Rogers Park tours, um, it MERS Apothecary here in, in uh, Lincoln Square has two of them above it. Uh, I just photographed one on 87th in Auburn Gresham, two on a, on a commercial building there. And even in my hometown of St. Paul, Minnesota, you, I, I found one uh, on a, a building right near where my dad lives. Um, and so it's the sort of thing where you spot it once, you, you memorize it, and you see it all over the place. So everyone needs to find the that version of the medallion in their neighborhood, and You've then got one probably a mile away from your house at least. And then you can, yeah. And then anywhere you walk in the walk in the city, you'll be able to find find other architects that uh, that uh, use that same Midland uh, catalog. You can um, also uh, you can also find whole facades that were taken out of catalogs. For example, uh, there's in Lincoln Square. There's a building. Uh, it's like right next to Harvest Time Grocery that has a, sort of a medallion atop, but then these particular terracotta string de course details. And that exact same design, uh, medallion design and string courses, I found on a building in Roseland at like 114th in Michigan, built six years apart. Whole departments, different architects, different owners built six years apart, but they pulled that same design of the same catalog. So when everyone is look, going out for a walk and hopefully after this, you'll all be paying more attention to your brick, need to be paying attention to the medallions on, on buildings, paying attention to those sort of duplicate municipal buildings, yep. um, maybe looking for some diapering, any other, any other sort of design features or, or specific things about brick that just somebody walking down the street, the first time they're, they're gonna start paying attention to brick, what should they be, uh, what should they be looking for? I think look at the difference in texture. You know, we talked how that fashion, look at it if it's smooth or if it's textured, what kind of texture is it? Is it a vertical scratch? Is it a rug texture where it, almost, it really looks like the piles of rug? Is it bark? Does it look made, made to look like tree bark? Um, is it stippled? All sorts of different textures were produced in the 1920s when a lot of these buildings were built. And, you, and you'll find, you know, once you start to see the texture, look even deeper and start to figure out, see what kind of different textures there are. And similarly, once you find these interesting details in your neighborhood, pick a different neighborhood to check out and see if you can find that detail there as well. The big thing I love with this work and with tours and, and educating people about neighborhood buildings is then encouraging them to go explore other neighborhoods that they're not as familiar with. So find those details where you live, but then go find them where you've never been before too. 
Wonderful. I, uh, I know I'm going to go out and try and, uh, I live by Mertz Apothecary, so I need to go look at that medallion, get it sort of emblazoned in my mind, and then uh, head off somewhere else and, and see where I can find it, do a little search for it. Um, we're nearly out of time, but just to close out this episode, we're going to do a few rapid-fire questions for you, Will. No stress. First thing that comes to mind, we're going to be getting away from brick a little bit. Right. I'm getting, uh, so the first thing is, how are you feeding your mind? Books, podcasts, any resources you recommend for our listeners? Uh, yeah, books, reading, uh, checking things out from the library. I've been doing a lot of ordering books uh, on holds at the library, and that's been uh, great tracking them and then a lot of fun reading them. Any, anything in particular you've really loved recently? Uh, I just started a book. It's called, I think it's called You Can't Knock the Hustle. And it's a guy who's an investigative reporter who embedded with the Brooklyn Nets uh, NBA team for the last two years. And I'm a huge NBA fan. So that's been, uh, been a really great read. Great. And what is your favorite thing to do here in Chicago? My favorite thing to do here in Chicago? Um, I've, I've been biking more and biking has been a whole new way to see the city, uh, but also eating. Eating. I love to eat. Uh, and we're so lucky here with so many restaurants. Wonderful. All right. Last question. And obviously you're not in real estate, but um, what is one piece of advice you'd give to someone sort of starting their real estate career, transitioning roles, maybe from an architecture perspective, what you wish, what you wish people in the real estate industry would, would know about, uh, about maybe Chicago architecture? I would say uh, there is a lot of stigma around certain parts of Chicago. And I think something that people can do is to break that stigma and explore those places that are oftentimes neglected or spoken ill of in the media and go meet, go interact with those places and those people on their level. Uh, you know, so many of the places in Chicago that are really dumped on are full of wonderful people who are homeowners and who are striving to make those neighborhoods better and to, uh, set, and there's so many great things there that are not celebrated. And so my biggest thing I'd encourage people to do is to just get out of their comfort zone and get into the neighborhoods, uh, and go find the people and the buildings there. Wonderful. And you now know what to look for in all those buildings. Yes, you do. Uh, well, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise today. Um, if anyone uh, want, listening wants to see examples of the brick and architecture we've talked about today, um, which I hope you do, I uh, hope you're all very excited about, about this, um, you can check out Will at Brick of Chicago on Instagram or at brickofchicago.com. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, the, the Learn page on Brick of Chicago has a lot of uh, photos of different types of bricks so that if you can't visualize any of the designs we've been talking about today, you can uh, uh, help yourself out there. I think once you, once you know what to look for, you'll start seeing interesting bricks everywhere. So thank you, Will. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you so much for having me. See everyone next time. Thanks for spending time with us this week. You can catch up with YPN and what we've got coming up next at chicagorealtor.com.